Welcome to the Bank of Me podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance build strong cultures. Hosted by James Sparrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a deep dive episode. Hello and welcome to this week's Deep Dive podcast. I am delighted to be joined by Andy Morton, who is the Head of Communications for the Red Arrows. If you're one of the very few people in the world who still doesn't know about them, they are the world's foremost aerobatic display team and they are also the public face of the Royal Air Force. Also though, they're renowned worldwide for both the culture they create and how they work together as a team. Andy, good to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And Andy, I know you've had a crazy week. Just give me some highlights. Well, we've just finished our season and we're just wrapping up basically what has been a brilliant 2018 season for us. But the work doesn't stop. We're already looking ahead to next year. I've got one pilot who's about to go on national television on a primetime show. So I'm dealing with that. We've got an engineer who's potentially going to appear on another primetime show on the other channel. My boss just told me about 48 hours ago I'm going overseas, luckily enough, in, in two weeks' time to... Uh, to represent the team on a, um, at, a at an international um, air show and I've got to squeeze in some leave of my own uh, as well so it's been typically varied uh, typically uh, brilliant but also usually uh, busy uh, but that is a typical week <laughs> it, it is indeed yeah I'm it's a great job I'm really lucky to do this job but also represent and work with a brand which is just so diverse you know it's the pros and cons of, of this particular role is you know the audience that I, I sort of work with is everything from a five-year-old child who's just interested in flying uh, right up to, you know, VIP, uh, a decision maker at a high level or, you know, a captain of industry. So it is uh, it's tricky to uh, obviously try and uh, help engage and, and influence all of those different folk. But that's what makes it so, uh, so rewarding. And also it's worthwhile pointing out you, you've got a global audience. You are Netflix in nine planes, aren't you, in terms of millions and millions of people worldwide see you? We have got a global brand, that's right. And, uh, you know, the Red Arrow since ooh, 1965, which is our, our first season, uh, have now displayed in 57 countries worldwide. So we really have been seen uh, almost uh, all around the world. Two years ago, I was lucky enough to be part of the, the team which went to China for the first time. We took the aircraft there and made history there by displaying. And that was a, a huge audience, as you can imagine, a huge logistical feat in its own right to to get those what was 12 little red aircraft all the way to uh, to China. We can't refuel in the air. We have to stop every so often to do that. So it's not like flying in a big commercial airliner. So it felt brilliant to get there. But I think, as you suggested there, it is a global reach. You really do feel uh, the, the the sort of um, length of that of that tour when you go somewhere as far as, as that. And you, uh, you know, you see that that brand uh, up there. Uh, amongst others you use that phrase little red plane which i think is lovely but when you see those as you say little red planes up in the air flying towards each other at 500 miles an hour and what six feet wingtip to wingtip they're quite dramatic as well aren't they they are and obviously you know the um the idea is that we inspire so hopefully that is the the biggest impression you get from seeing those aircraft fly so dynamically you know, obviously the team is famous for flying nine fast jet, British built aircraft, 
in the sky and obviously making it look hopefully brilliant to all of those watching. But of course, the impact we want to have is in, in fact making people uh, stop, uh, put down their mobile phones maybe and uh, look up from the screen, particularly difficult with uh, our younger audiences. You know, it's not often you get young people now to maybe put down the tablet and actually look up and, and think, you know, and, and be inspired and, and say, wow. But that is indeed what we try and do. And, and so when you hear the reaction of a crowd, whether that be in the UK or indeed overseas, that's really what we want. So, uh, so yes, that the nine aircraft are indeed the, if you like, the focal point of, of the brand. But it, it's what goes on behind that and how we, we get there, which I think once you start unpicking it, people get really sort of additionally excited about. Very much so. And it all boils down to one word, which is your motto. Can you tell me more about that? Because it's, it's inspiring, but also humbling. That's right. So if you have a look next time you, you see any Red Arrows personnel uh, at an event, uh, whether they be in the red flying suits, the famous red flying suits as a pilot or a blue coverall for one of our support staff. And you'll see on the, um, the sleeve uh, of that uh, uniform, the, the uh, crest for the team. And on that, you'll see our nine little uh, red aircraft, but also you'll see the word clat. Uh, so obviously brilliance or, or excellence and excellence is what we are trying to achieve. The big part of that is trying. You know, we don't think we've achieved it yet. We always want to be uh, in a persistent pursuit of excellence. So we want to make sure that the display uh, we have today can be better tomorrow. And, and so each part of the team is is really there to to try and get better. You're not resting on your laurels. If we think we've done an excellent uh, display, you perhaps then uh, gain complacency. Uh, it really just gives you motivation, though, if all of your team is, is set upon uh, delivering excellence upon excellence and really trying to achieve more and more of that. People listening in are probably thinking, yeah, of course, that's a great motto, but those guys are the top of the top. They're going to get it perfect 99.9% of the time. But when they do their post-flight briefing, it's not the case, is it? The post-flight briefing is full of mistakes. Tell us about that, because I've, I've watched it and it is just bizarre. When the Red Arrows take to the air, uh, what people are seeing uh, is probably a, a display of, of 20 uh, plus minutes. But actually, the preparation that goes into that starts obviously much earlier with a, a pre-flight briefing, a very detailed one. And then, of course, the flight happens. But it's the debrief that a lot of people find the most interesting. So every single time we perform, we have a photographer from the team who videos that, uh, that sequence. Uh, and then the uh, video is played back uh, later on. The pilots then watch that, that film and they call out their own mistakes. So they will they will assess how they've uh, they've done and really try and look at uh, room for improvement. Actually, sometimes that uh, film, obviously, the way that you once you start talking about it, it actually takes longer to to view and to analyse than the actual flight has. So the whole process can can last quite some time. But the idea is it's relatively succinct, though, still, and, and obviously has a certain process to it and follows a similar format. Uh, and so really it is a, a very well put together process of looking at just how that flight went. Uh, and really what we're looking for there is, is honesty from each member of that team. That's the end point. That ability to go out, to fly for 20 minutes, to analyse what's gone on, to constantly push for excellence while they're doing their displays throughout the summer but it all starts now i guess when there's no such thing as the red arrows is there that they're no longer in red and blue suits they're in green 
we're at a really interesting time of year. So what's just happened, obviously, is the uh, conclusion to our latest uh, season, our 54th display season in 2018. And the pilots leaving the team have just said goodbye. And those who are remaining to go on to the team for next year, obviously, most pilots do three years of the team, are joined by new colleagues. So the whole process starts again. And what happens there is that we put away the red and blue flying suits and the, the guys and girls go into green suits. The, the sort of training phase of the team begins and we have a building block approach. So we'll start flying with two or three uh, aircraft uh, in formation and the new pilots in particular learn the skills of really dynamic formation flying. They will have all done formation flying before in their careers in the Royal Air Force, but now we take it to a whole new level. And so you've got very experienced fast jet pilots who've flown operationally, who've flown uh, you know, very high tech, uh, leading edge aircraft such as the Typhoon. And then we bring them back to so these very simple aircraft, the Hawk jet, uh, jets, which is much more simple, much smaller that we fly. And really what we do with, with them is start again. So we, we build up this team from scratch. And so over the next six months, we'll start gradually uh, building more uh, um, uh, complexity to those formations, increasing the number of aircrafts, doing more and more of the display, which hopefully people will get to see uh, next year. And so like any organization, it's a, it's, a, it's a time of resetting at the moment. And that's not just with the, the flying aspect, but also the engineering as well. So at the moment, taking a short pause in flying, no more than two weeks. And it gives the, the engineers chance to uh, look at the aircraft to, to again, and make sure they're ready to go for the winter training phase, which will last through until obviously in the new year where we like to take the team away from the UK, which is really important. So we have perhaps five weeks away in an overseas training where the weather can be much more guaranteed. I don't know if any of your listeners have been to Lincolnshire where we're based, but it's not always the most guaranteed uh, climate. And so it's important we find somewhere where there's some consistency and we fly 15 sorties a week, three sorties a day, that is, which is pretty grueling for both pilot and support staff. And the idea there is to really add polish and, and perfect that display without the distractions of, of home life or indeed, as I said, the uh, the bothersome climate. You mentioned there something that would terrify most organisations, which is every year you lose a large percentage of the team and new people come in. But it works. And I guess it works because you plan around that. And I know that you've got a very carefully curated recruitment process you can't just wander in and pick up a red suit can you people are chosen through a very thought through and careful selection criteria can you tell us a bit more about that that's right so there is trust in selection in in the red arrows so uh, every year we uh, obviously have a calling card for uh, for new pilots to potentially join the team we will get perhaps around 30 applications from the fast jet fraternity in the royal air force the, the team leader and the officer commanding uh, obviously will sift through those applications before the other pilots also look at them as well. And gradually we'll get to a point where we have perhaps a shortlist of seven or nine pilots, depending on how many we need to recruit for the following year. And those will, pilots will be invited to join us uh, on our overseas training, what we call exercise Springhawk. They'll come out for a week's selection. And all sorts of things will happen during that week. But principally, we will obviously have a flying test for them. So we'll they will um, be assessed on, on their flying. They'll also have a formal interview with the senior leadership. They'll also be assessed amongst their peers. You know, we will see what they're like socially. We'll see what they're like, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, playing golf or in, on a cart track or 
really going out for a meal. You know, it's important because uh, all of these people will be living cheap and agile, you know, when it comes to the season, very, very busy season that is. So we need to know we're going to get on with them and we're going to be able to trust them. We also see what they're like in front of the camera. You know, they're going to be ambassadors, not just for the Royal Air Force, but also for the UK overseas. It's important they know they have a public role uh, as well. And then, uh, you know, the one or two people or perhaps three, depending on, as I said, the number we need to choose will be chosen by that year's team. Uh, so we have to get it right. And we only pick from those pilots who have got above average uh, grading in their flying uh, careers, in their flying role. They've got the right number of hours. They've flown for long enough. And also they come from that operational background. So they've flown on the front line uh, for the Royal Air Force. So, uh, so yes, the, the, the talent pool, if you like, is uh, relatively small, but uh, hopefully, you know, we've 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 tried to get that right, and of course, it's important that those pilots then come to us with that ability to to learn, and that's another critical factor that we're looking for. When, you know, we're not looking for the finished article already. The pilots uh, will always choose fellow pilots who have got a capacity to learn and and obviously be self-critical uh, and to gradually build up their, uh, if you like, their, their skill levels yet again, and to be part and parcel of most importantly a team and that's how you you test isn't it when you do the flying and you ask them to do is it to loop the loops they're looking for something particular aren't they the existing team that's right so uh hopefully in a few months time uh, you'll see a new uh documentary on uh, one of the uh, the mainstream channels and and the documentary team took great length at, at uh, looking at uh, this process and in fact yeah you get to see those new pilots uh, undergoing um, uh, that flying test where they, they complete uh, uh, some roles and uh, also some loops. And again, it's looking for, uh, you know, self-awareness. Uh, obviously, yes, they have to be good at flying, but crucially, you know, they need to be able to identify how well they did perhaps and, and talk to the more experienced Red Arrows pilot with them and, and uh, you know, talk through how uh, he or she did. And one of the words that you dropped in there in terms of the, the capabilities you're looking for is trust tell me why that's so critical it, it, it sounds obvious but it's something that those nine need absolutely don't they yes trust is, is important i think most people looking at the red arrows and, and uh, obviously watching the sky will automatically judge why that's important yes the the aircraft are flying very very quickly and they're flying very close uh, closely together However, it probably goes even deeper than that. Ask one of the pilots and, and, and they may probably say, well, you know, it's trust in that teamwork. It's trust that everybody has done their job correctly. Everybody works very, very hard and, and, you know, the team is relatively small. So you have to trust that all of those different operational factors that go into making that display look as good as it does, whether that be one of the pilots, whether it be an engineer, a support staff, one of our administrators, a driver to get them to where they're going on time, everybody trusting one another to make sure all of that happens. So culturally, that is crucial. And, and culturally, we need to know that uh, we are picking the right people and they do understand the bigger picture. And, and that's, that's, that's a big part of what we do is to make sure people understand, uh, you know, what we're trying to achieve uh, from a day to day basis. And as we move through our calendar year and at, at what phase we are at uh, in that sequence. You talk about the wider team and the, the role they play in enabling the displays throughout the year you've got something called the circus which is a concept that i'd love i love both the, the name you've given it but also the way you do it because that really does build a, a wider team doesn't it 
the circus or the traveling circus, if you like, uh, that's where it gets its name from, are the support engineers who fly with the aircraft from A to B. So they don't get to fly in the displays. But what we do is we handpick some of our very best engineers and one of our photographers usually who will pair up with one of our pilots uh, across the course of the display season. So just as the pilots are known as Reds 1 through to 11, we have Circus 1 through to 11, and they will work very closely with our pilots throughout the year, looking after the aircraft to make sure the, the jet is serviceable before and uh, after flights and ready for the next display or transit flight. Uh, and obviously that's a huge privilege for them. You know, they are Royal Air Force uh, technicians who will be flying in the back seat of a fast jet aircraft. Uh, but also they know that when they're on the road, quite often they are the only group of people ready there to look after those aircraft. So that could be anywhere around the world. So imagine a Formula One pit crew who are servicing that that car, but in this case, the aircraft several times a day in different locations, again, with a deadline to uh, to, to meet. So you can imagine we have to make sure that their selection uh, is is right and they then gel together as a team uh, for that year. So for them, they are another team within the wider team who have to operate at a very high level. And that selection is based on past delivery and past excellence, isn't it? That it's you're not just chosen arbitrarily, you're chosen because you really have made an effort. Exactly that. You have to get people who have, have shown a dedication, a commitment to, to, uh, to the team, uh, who have, of course, got the right skills, have got the right knowledge base uh, and are going to blend as well. You know, you can't have a team all of uh, the same type of individual. You've got to have uh, a team who are going to be able to operate uh, away in the field, who are going to be deployed with the aircraft somewhere and be able to rely on one another's skill sets and make up to, to do that. Uh, interestingly, of course, just as the pilots do, the circus members will also have a secondary duty. So first and foremost, of course, they are, they are engineers or a photographer. But secondly, they may be responsible for transport. So they'll be the ones who have to ensure that the uh, the taxis or the, uh, the minibuses are waiting to take them from uh, airports to accommodation and, and back. Or indeed, it could be somebody who's in charge of uh, all the documentation. It could be somebody who's in charge of their training. So, again, they've each got a secondary role uh, that's critical to their performance. Uh, and it may be something they've not done before. So they're learning something uh, new. And if you imagine the sensory overload that comes, first of all, with flying in a fast jet, you know, you then have to get past that and then still deliver on your core duty and then do something else as well. So you really are developing people as well as relying on, on their past experience, too. From what I've seen, passion's a big part of this. And to just put that into context, when I spoke to one of your uh, circus crew and I asked about sitting in the back of a Red Arrows jet flying across Europe, I said that must be incredibly exciting. And he said it is, but it's also incredibly uncomfortable. Those those planes are not built for long-term passenger comfort, are they? They are very small, very basic planes. And I paused and then he smiled and he said, but it's still very cool. And I, I think that's a great attitude that it's what they do is, is so much more than what, how they do it. There's a massive smile on the faces of most of the circus, I'd say, when uh, when you see them come down after a flight. It's probably been, you know, maybe a little bit uncomfortable in places and they're probably pretty, pretty hot and, and warm because uh, they're often flying, obviously, in the middle of the summer. But they've got huge appreciation for, for their pilots, for what they're doing, what they're able to to achieve uh, during that uh, during that season. 
and yes you know there's a huge amount of pride and passion in in that and, and quite rightly so they are representing their own professions but also the Royal Air Force in the UK and when they land they're very often on show there are people watching from the the sidelines there's people watching at air shows behind the fences at airports and airfields around the world so they have got a big job um, not just looking after those aircraft but also being the front line of, of whether it be recruitment or representing the UK or simply inspiring the next generation of engineers technicians and specialists just turning to the display for a moment tell me about the sensors they use to to effectively fly during that that 20 minute period because there's nothing in the plane is there other than a stopwatch that helps them with the display so the the hawk aircraft is a really simple aircraft very simple jet um, but it's perfect for what our pilots use it for it's um, got no high-tech wizardry in the cockpits uh, as you said there, Chris, it's got um, you know stopwatch and it's got a very experienced pilot at the front who uh, is flying off the references of, uh, of Red One, the team leader, who's at the very front of those nine aircraft. He has choreographed the display. He's led all the training. He leads the team in, in the air. And next time you're at, a, at an air show and you listen to the commentary that is being given, you'll hear that sometimes you're lucky enough to uh, listen into the cockpit chatter if you like of the uh, the radio transmissions of fred one and what he's doing he's using a, the cadence of his voice to guide his team around the sky uh, so that all of those pilots are, are flying not just by sight but also by by ear they're not listening for something which uh, is going to catch them out they, they hopefully know what's coming but they are responding to to that voice command so they're looking out from their jets not at the aircraft next to them but towards red one's aircraft and they're flying uh, off that voice cadence so that um, when you see the aircraft move in the air, they're moving as one. They're not moving as a domino effect, you know, waiting for the aircraft next to them to move first. Uh, and that's hopefully how we get that nice flat plate in the sky moving. It's great, isn't it? Because there's there's that old fashioned statement of you fly by the seat of your pants. But it sounds like your guys fly by the lobes of their ears. <laughs> exactly that. You know, they, they're listening to that and, and you'll you'll hear you know, it's a very deliberate uh, voice command that Red One will, will have. And, you know, he will practice that. And uh, again, when he comes into his position for the first time, he's got to sort of learn how to, to put that across to get that, you know, that, that cadence right. And, you know, the pace and, and how what goes into that and what he's saying. So they're absolutely right. They're, they're listening um, to, to his commands and, and uh, really wants it to get that right. You say about Red One and his voice. When you meet Red One, it, him and the voice don't go together, do they? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's obviously he's got to lead his, his team, as I said, in the air and on the ground. And, and uh, you know, at the moment, uh, our current Red One, um, squadron leader Martin Pert, he's a very good orator. Uh, you know, he's a, he gives a very good presentation. Uh, I know that you, when you met him, you got a flavour of, of, of that. And, uh, you know, that is, I guess, part of leadership, you know, having that clarity and being an excellent communicator, whether that is speaking to his, his team uh, or indeed when he's asked to, um, you know, present on the ground to maybe, uh, you know, a group from industry or, or from from a university or, or others. And, you know, that is that is something which I think is another part of the job, you know, which they often don't first appreciate, you know, when they're perhaps thinking about coming to the team for the first time. You know, obviously, Red One, he knows what he's going to be in for when he comes back. You know, it's going to be very much that public face. But 
uh, is a big, big part of the job, which not all of them, you know, uh, first think about. But often they find it's perhaps amongst the most enjoyable aspects of the job. Obviously, the flying is is brilliant. And, and a lot of them tell me that. But actually, it's the meeting people on the ground, which uh, comes as a, as a as a huge, pleasant surprise. So on that meeting moment, if I could just share a little story to put that into context, because I, I do worry that people view the Red Arrows team in the same terms that we see in films like Top Gun, where they emerge from dry ice and there's music playing and these guys are top of their field and very kind of bullish and and macho. When I went to Lincoln to see you, I was made a cup of tea by a chap who was busy talking about the day and and our trip up. And it took me 10 minutes to realise he was a Red Arrow. They are very down-to-earth guys, aren't they? They are down to earth. Hopefully, we're all down to earth, and and that's that's the idea. You know that all of us have, have obviously got uh, hopefully very ordinary, normal backgrounds, and you know come from right across the the UK, and that's the idea. You know, obviously, it's all about that training that is um, hopefully being put into people's careers, and and that's where where they've taken them to, and they've got trust in in their abilities and the uh, capabilities of the equipment they've got around them. But but crucially, yes, we we need to be approachable and. The Red Arrows exist to inspire um, people from all backgrounds and of all ages. Uh, so it's important that uh, we are approachable. Obviously, uh, sometimes the, the flying and our, and our schedules make it very difficult to uh, to get to all of the places we are we are uh, uh, humbly invited to go to. But uh, we do try and, and do our very best to meet as many people as possible during the season uh, and get to uh, to visit lots of different places. So it's a huge and very, very important part of the role that we have. Uh, is to engage um, with all sorts of different types of organisations. So t- mixing two things together there, one, one you say it's about people being very ordinary in terms of, of how they live their lives, but you you do, as a team, do the most extraordinary things, and you say about going interesting places. Talk about Kuala Lumpur and what you got to do there. So uh, we, uh, we, we've been lucky enough to fly to um, uh, to Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur a few times in the Red Arrows history. The, the experience I have there obviously is from uh, more recent times. That's 2016 as part of our, uh, our Far East and Middle East tour. Uh, and in one day, the Red Arrows were fortunate enough to perform a, a fly past over the capital city there and principally around the um, Petronas Twin Towers where the uh, the airspace obviously was freed up for us to to do that and one of my colleagues who was the photographer that year flying in the back seat of Red 10's aircraft flying uh, above the other nine aircraft as they as they banked around with uh, smoke on coming out of the aircraft was able to get the most amazing photograph of those aircraft sweeping around with that brilliant backdrop of those those sparkling silver towers there and indeed, that photograph, when he landed, uh, he uh, was able to uh, to get to me. And then I was able to obviously send out to uh, colleagues back in the UK and beyond. And, and it was on uh, international news just, uh, you know, a little while later. And it really did encapsulate uh, what we'd achieved with that tour. And that you know, almost iconic photograph was shared very, very widely. And in fact, that image itself won uh, the People's Choice Award of RRAF 
photographic competition um, a little while later. So people were able to vote on it and even they uh, agreed. The public vote uh, backed us up. And what made it even more amazing was that um, just a few hours earlier on that day when that image was taken, the Red Arrows had done exactly the same thing, but this time over Singapore. And uh, we got some great photographs there over the Marina Bay in Singapore. So you really do get a sense of just how well the, the brand hopefully is regarded and the reputation of the Royal Air Force overseas as well. And just so, so lucky as a team to be afforded the, the chance to, to do that and, and record it in that way as well. It feels like there's a lot of fondness for the brand. And to, to put what you've just said in perspective, first of all, I'd suggest if you're listening in, take a moment and Google Red Arrows Kuala Lumpur and look at the photos because it's just spectacular. But that would be akin to you guys getting the whole of London's airspace to play in, wouldn't it? It, it just wouldn't happen. It, we, we were really looking. You look at the, uh, obviously, the topography of, uh, of there and all the different uh, buildings, you know, it's, it's splendid to be able to get that, that chance. But um, very often, you know, those are the images which, which linger and yeah. uh, uh, hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll be remembered for uh, some years to come. I could just imagine as a pilot... The, the temptation to go in between the Patronus t- towers rather than around them must have been very strong. Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? You, you just hope everything goes right on the day. And uh, <laughs> thankfully it did. And uh, I was I was obviously on the ground, but I, you know, always uh, really, whenever I get a chance to be there and look up and watch something like that and know you've been, uh, you know, even just a small part of helping it happen or indeed waiting eagerly to see what the images look like so you can share them with, yeah. with an anticipated audience. Uh, that is, um, that's just brilliant. And yeah, the crowd I was with, um, looking up from uh, from below was uh, yeah they were really impressed which was which was great. You literally stopped traffic, didn't you, in one of the world's busiest cities? Yeah, and you know what? It's not the first time that I've been, <laughs> I've been to other locations. Uh, I think uh, one being uh, Doha when we were lucky enough to do a display there in, in Qatar, and uh, in yeah we, we we saw the uh, the traffic come to a to a standstill with people watching and uh, and enjoying and qu- very quickly that you know they were able to get back on their way, but. But yes, it has that effect. And that's the idea. You know, the, the red arrows are there when we're overseas, uh, um, principally, to uh, to really shine a light on, on the UK. So it's our, um, you know, our aim, really, to provide a platform for industry um, who are perhaps wanting to do business over there or to, to attract investment to really say, look, this is what Britain's all about. It's about precision. It's about inspiration. It's about uh, excellence, you know, that engineering uh, excellence in particular. And what we find is aviation is a global language. You know, people do understand it. They, they get it. And, and, you know, Britain is a world leader in it. So Red Arrows hopefully can be a market opener very often. And it's that convening power of that brand to bring people together. And, and what happens after the display, you know, often there's a reception or there is a, uh, a trade mission, um, you know, as part of that. And hopefully the, um, the, the display, the aerobatic display, is, is simply the pinnacle of what then happens uh, later on uh, and in the weeks to come in those locations. And that's a really critical point because alongside causing gridlock across Asia, you've, you also generated a lot of income for UK business. Uh, you know, we're there to um, to really be the, uh, the, the if you like the tactical delivery. You know, we're we're providing the aerobatic display, and for those um, colleagues elsewhere in government um, to really um, put that together on the ground, and they do a great job. And, and hopefully, we you know we work very closely to make uh, to make that happen. But I, I think what you you see with that display 
very much um you know very visible tangible almost example of what what britain stands for and, and uh, you know i've just, i've been lucky enough to see that on a number of occasions and it's brilliant when you can um, literally take the uh, you know the union flag and, and fly it almost anywhere around the world and uh, you know that means something to a lot of a lot of people and you know we have a lot of international partners who you know obviously appreciates um you know the partnerships uh, uh, which are then sometimes developed for the first time or indeed maintained and strengthened and and yeah. you know that is it's a great way of doing it you know it's this it's an aerobatic display which doesn't happen every day in those places and taking that right back to the first conversation we had it's also a future generation that you're inspiring and you get quite a lot of letters don't you from applications from children we we have a, a huge following but of course uh, young people in particular uh, is you know an audience group uh, if you like which we really want to uh, to engage with to inspire for them to to look up and and wonder you know to to think about what they may achieve it may not be that they want to be pilots or engineers one day hopefully that you know that is amongst the things they're considering but it's it's probably a bit deeper than that it's actually just what um they could achieve through teamwork and and dedication and considering you know their their dreams and where they may go it's 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 somewhat cheesy to uh when you hear about a uh, red arrows pilot who was inspired by the red arrows as a child but do you know what it's absolutely true the pilots that who have just left the team i i asked them to put together in their own words what the highlights of, of their time with the team was, you know, what it's meant for them. And, and I didn't give them really any more guidance than that. And all of them said it's been a boyhood dream come true. And they weren't making that up. You know, they're not known for being gushing uh, overwhelmingly without, uh, you know, without consideration. And that is something which they were free uh, to, to say. And, and they did. And, and that's, you know, that's great. That's what you want to hear. But also hopefully out there, you know, the next generation will, will hear that and, and start to think about just what it's taken for that person to achieve their, their dream. I have just one final question for you around the numbers. And so you've got red ones to nine. They use those numbers quite regularly, don't they, as part of the process of feedback and briefing. And But it's an important part because that's depersonalising some of the conversation. That's right. When you go into our, our, our debrief, you'll have noticed that we um, or none of the pilots rather uh, talk to one another or communicate using their first names or, or any sort of thing more personal than that. It's all to do with their, uh, their number, their position. So reds, you know, one through nine for the display pilots. They will um, use those to, to really depersonalize that, that debrief and to make it as objective as possible. And, you know, it's a very simple technique, but uh, when you're watching their, their debrief, you can tell straight away that that makes it um, very, very focused. And as soon as they leave that debrief uh, session, they're back to being somewhat more informal and don't uh, use those numbers. And, and that really does create that sense of, of, as I say, focus for that debrief and makes it all the more meaningful and worthwhile. You get a lot of businesses wanting to come and see how you do what you do, don't you? Because you're approaches and those those tips and those techniques are so transferable we're sometimes looking enough to to invite uh, organizations uh, into uh, that that debrief uh, and the feedback that we get is is great yeah i really do find that that uh, interesting and, and useful and you know that could be you know small organizations or much larger ones and i think what they get from from that debrief uh, we very often get told is it, they just get a sense that you know of the honesty and and the fact that you know the self-awareness that you you need to have in whatever job or role 
uh, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, obviously the, the, the aerobatic field that our pilots uh, work in. But, you know, I very often learn that organisations um, say we took this and we've put it into practice. And that's just that's great to hear. You know, it's not um, it's probably not rocket science what we're, we're doing, obviously, but it is something which people clearly find useful. Exactly. Andy, I think we've taken enough of your time. It, you've got a busy week. Uh, you need to close it off. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to hear your stories. It's great to hear the parallels between what you guys are doing over in Lincoln and across the world and wider organisations. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And I hope uh, your listeners get to watch the Red Arrow display hopefully sometime in the future. Thank you for listening. Continue the journey at www.theculturebuilders.com.